0: So just a little bit of news about what the Business Book Club is doing um, to update you. We have to date this year collected just over a thousand books. We're busy negotiating with various outlets as to where we can put these books for good use. So we are looking at uh, rural areas, communities and libraries where really they're trying out for books and we are very busy working on that and we will be announcing that fire. New website, And if you haven't seen our new website, please do visit it, please join as a member. It's just been launched, it's an absolutely fantastic website, we're so proud of it. So please i ask all of you just to pop on www.thisishoodclub.org. We'd love to have you there. What other news have I got for you? Ah, more exciting, 9th of October which is next Tuesday. We will be going to Cape Town and we are launching the Cape Town chapter of this book club. That will be headed up by Borland Hesketh. And um, we already have got a great response to that. So we are expanding and we want you to spread the word as well, please. Another uh, exciting time for us is that we have now put all our podcasts live and you can see those on SoundCloud. So if you haven't missed any past event, pop onto the side Lab and you'll be able to catch up with all our past events, right back to our beginnings in April 2017. I can't believe we've can so wrong. And I think that's enough information for you. And now I'm gonna hand over to Musa, and he's gonna to talk to us about thinking big. I'll hand over to Jacques. Thank you. Thank
1: you, thank you, Jane. And thank you for everybody attending tonight. Uh, the Business book, is one of our many, many, many events. Who's here for the first time tonight? Okay, I'm not, I'm, I've not been here before, but okay, cool. Excellent, so we've got some new people. Well, we hope you've got a fantastic event. If you say to the person on your left and you ask them why you are here, they will probably say to you because you don't know what you don't know. Uh, and that's how we have the Business We are extremely passionate about knowledge, Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know what you don't know, you cannot change your behavior. It's as simple as that. And, and through the Business Book Club, we are the, the promotion, it's about the promotion of knowledge. It's about sharing sharing knowledge and really getting books to those who don't have access to the knowledge that we do. I mean, that's, you know, if we, if we want to know something, what do you do? You go and Google, you Google it. But there's a lot of people who don't have, have that privilege. Um, and that's really what the personal Book Club is, and why, why we are passionate about what, what we do, and why we get amazing authors like Musa. to a big of a hand for, for Musa tonight. Well, this is an amazing gentleman. So if you go and you look about his history, I mean, he, he looks very white. He's actually still quite young. Uh, he's probably a bit of an old soul. Uh, but if you know what, the, the and Guardian rated him as one of the top young entrepreneurs in South Africa. Now, I haven't asked him his age yet tonight, but but at the age of 26, he's already started his own business, he's already made it. He ran big projects for ABSA, like big marketing projects, like doing research that nobody else was doing. And at the age of, and, and then by the age of 26, he was head of digital marketing for NetBank. Now, there's not a lot of people who've got that type of experience and also that type of that type of spot, to be able to do that type of thing so i'm extremely excited to, to talk to Musa tonight about how he's done it um, where he comes from um, you know what beginnings does he have and what makes one successful especially considering digital marketing and, and Musa the noise that's out there today i mean digital marketing is an absolute absolute noise but, but let's first talk about about you, um, how did you, how did you end up in marketing? I mean, did you, were you like five years old and started to sell bubble gum and then realized that you had a flip? <laughs> how, how did you get into marketing?
2: <laughs> Thank you very much, Jacques, and uh, it's actually funny because yeah, that's, that's not too far off, actually. <laughs> um, I, I've always had an interesting knack for, for people, um, and I had a very interesting knack for being able to communicate across um, age barriers, gender barriers, racial barriers, and I was brought up in a very multicultural context. Um, and so my passion for marketing actually stemmed for my, my love for, for people. And I remember my mother often referencing when I was younger, my first business was selling those Take 5 ice uh, lollies at school. Um, because I uh, went to a school where I realized that a lot of my friends used to walk home from school, and I used to observe them walking home from school, and I realized that there was a market for them. To get some sustenance on the way home um, and so i went to my mother and i said uh, let's go to macro and let's buy a bunch of ice lollies and she, my mother's an introvert, so she looks at me and she's you're crazy and i said you know let me try this out so i bought a pack of about 10 uh, take five ice lollies and i sold them outside the school um, and I, I made a profit from day one and that was kind of where i first started realizing that if you can identify areas where there's value to be created um, you know, put yourself in gear and, and do it. So, so that for me was essentially looking at a, at a place where I could see there's a clear need. I had a good understanding of the people that were within my you know, friends' from at, at primary school. Um, and for me, that was a clear education that I should be able to, wow. to them. So that's where it started in practical terms. Uh, but more you know, along the way, because I started doing a lot of different and crazy things, I believe I'm always trying to balance my creative brain and my technical brain. Um, so through high school I was involved with uh, a lot of kind of art related stuff. So I used to dance, I was a choreographer at some stage. Oh my goodness. Um, so I did, could do a few moves for I did right? do a lot of moves for you. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, my wife hasn't seen any of those. So, it's, it's, so this <laughs> is your special mind. <laughs> is my special mind um, but at the same time I was, I was quite technical, so I was fairly adept mathematically. Yeah. Um, so I understood uh, a lot of things related to patterns and the way the world worked. So I always was trying to consolidate these two brains uh, that that I believed I had. Um, And so when the decision came for me to do marketing formally, it was actually as a result of me failing my entire first year at VITS. uh, Because I started at VITS thinking that I was going to be an actuary, um, as one does. That's a far cry. Yeah, yeah. That's a (laughs) far cry. Because I had a fairly successful run in school, and I was in leadership positions out of high school, and it was natural, you know, either become a doctor, a lawyer, or an actuary. So when I went to Vits, that was the plan, Um, and because I was still so busy dancing and, as my dad says, wasting time with all these other activities, uh, I failed my entire first year. And uh, for me it was a moment of reflection because, A, I just wasn't interested in the content, the subject matter of becoming an actuary, to be quite honest. I realised that everybody else that was in my class that was doing econometrics models and solving things from first principles looked really miserable. (laughs) <laughs> um, and I That's quite, a good sign. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't quite console, console myself to do that for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, and so the actual decision to start studying marketing was based on when I was registering for my <laughs> second year. Um, after failing everything, those of you who've been to bits and never failed, they exclude you financially. So they say, you can't come back if you failed everything. So I literally went on a campaign, knocking on different doors at different campuses, trying to get back into the varsity. Um, and it wasn't for a letter written it wasn't for a letter written by one of my first year tutors saying you know he's actually not a dumb kid he just wasn't focused Um, I wouldn't have gotten back into into bits, and you know god knows what the outcome would have been but uh, thank goodness I did and I stood in the registration line and I thought do I re-register to do Axi, or do I try a different path and and I made the decision to try a different path and that's how I officially you know got into the field of marketing and I think that was a a lesson for me because I think I, I came back to the truth about who I am which is people and being able to communicate across um, across lots of different barriers. So that's how I, I got into marketing. Excellent.
0: Excellent.
2: Well, well was that, was it was it
0: your first time
1: that you failed at something? We'll yep. talk, and we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, because you know success success is trailed by a bunch of failures. I yeah? and people, people never see the failures but, yeah. but we all know that. Everybody's had some the other person has done that yeah. and that's true. So so there you were you were you were busy um, doing your marketing. But I mean surely Somewhere along the line, you were, I mean, you didn't stop making money. I mean, you were, you've always been a bit of a money machine. Uh, I've been selling your lollipops. I don't know what it progressed to, and I mean, you don't have to share everything with us. But but, but share your progression on, on, you know, how how did you fund your business? On the one side you had the continue so you've got the proper, the marketing qualification, which is theory. Yes. And we all know how theory works. Mm. It does. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's all about application, it's application of the theory we work on. So, so how do you apply that theory and what, what insights did you gain while studying marketing? I mean, did you go and do, you you, you study the marketing material and then went, yeah, I don't believe really this do stuff, or maybe you try something else, or maybe try this, this is really, this is really a cool insight. How did that work for you? Well, I, I think it was uh, a combination of
2: stupidity and... Um, uh, and curiosity, an insatiable curiosity. So when I was, when I was studying at Vicks, um you're quite right, I, I didn't stop ever pursuing my commercial interests on the side, and that was one of the reasons why my first year was such a disaster. But I got better at managing the different things that interested me. Um, academia was what I felt was important, and I felt that um, if I had, to, I believe that if anybody has the opportunity, you, you, know, you don't turn that down. But I was also quite clear that I, I had the ability to create value outside of formal education. So while I was studying in bits, as an example, I got involved um, with the Youth Advertising Board of South Africa, which effectively was a body that was set up to protect the advertising interests of, of uh, commercial companies towards young people. Um, so when you start sending commercial messages to young people under like the age of 16, there's a lot to be considered legally, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so I spent a lot of time kind of sitting through research reports, through um, exploration surveys, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, trying to help corporate South Africa understand the right way to advertise to young people. Um, and through that process, I effectively started consulting to some of these businesses. Um, and that's where I started interacting with the executive team at, uh, at APSA. Um, and it was uh, just quite funny because at the time, I, my first business when I got to it was actually just a, it was a website called Humanity Fellows. And um, the, whole, the whole premise of the website is I had a lot lots of friends from you know, Nigeria, Ghana, Zimbabwe, I'm from Zambia myself. Um, so we wanted to actually see what it was like when people went home. You know, there's this curiosity that, 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 that you have when you're at university because you meet so many diverse people. Um, but what happens during holidays is there's like a, there's an exodus. So everybody leaves campus. Um, and if you have friends that come from other countries, typically they go home. Um, so I was always really curious about, you know, what's it like in Rwanda? Like, can we, uh, you, know, can you give, give me some experience, something? So we started sharing photos across the site uh, called the naughty fellas. Um, and the whole premise was just trying to connect with people. Um, and the 16 of us got together, and when guys went home to Zim, you know, because you're at Varsity, you want to see pictures of all the all the hot chicks in Zimbabwe. So it ended it up being like this, you know, look at all the hot chicks in Zimbabwe type site. Um, but we were trying to learn from each other. And that morphed into effectively a, a little kind of events business, and we started throwing little parties in and around, Ralph Fentain, um on the same premise. Let's try and connect when people come back to campus and see, you know, if we can create connections. Um, So that business kind of was bubbling over in my first and second year. Um, When I started the work with the youth advertising board, it intersected with some of the stuff we were doing because I had these opportunities to engage with young people and I had this opportunity to speak to corporate South Africa. It made sense that I could bridge the gap between helping them understand what they were trying to achieve uh, and being able to represent the mind, the heartbeat and the state of young people. And so the business was born out of this this niche space where um, we went to business like Absa, who paid lots of money for research, paid lots of money to different big companies, and at the end of the day, they came out with quite um, quite uh, watered down and really not applicable insights into the youth market. Uh, and so they came to me and they said, "Can you help us get a better sense of how to respond to all the changes that were happening at the time?" And some of you might recall when uh, Virgin Money came into South Africa. So Richard Branson came with the Bling offering and. It was all about the credit cards that they were issuing to young people and it was all types of people were saying around responsible lending, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and that created a lot of kind of panic uh, um, with the traditional financial institutions. And that's literally where my first corporate client came from, where APSA said to me, you know, things are changing so rapidly here, and it seems like you get what's happening with young people. Can you help us figure out what we should be doing to respond to this? Um, and so what was a little kind of uh, events business and photo sharing site, then turned into a way that would drive insight for corporate business. Um, and the, 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 the value proposition was quite simple, is that we went, you know, we went to AppState and we said, when I say we, it's me and my laptop, right? So you know how we talk <laughs> as entrepreneurs. We yeah. went to AppState, um, uh-huh. we but you know, I went to AppState, and I said to them, you know what, you guys are all gathering research at the time, Nielsen, Lillard Brown, um, JWT, Youth Dynamics, all these great research firms, And I said to them, but if, you, if you're all sharing the same research across the same reports, how niche can your strategy really be, right? And I, and I put this to them um, in the room for the apps what you actually might." So I said, well, we're gonna give you kind of a very bespoke understanding of the market. Um, and that was a very simple way to bring them into the research process as opposed to keeping them outside of it. And so the gap I saw was researchers at the time would get a brief, they'd run away and then kind of do research over six months and then they'd come back six months later and go ta da here's the thing. Um, and so I realized that created a level of mistrust because in South Africa were turning on and going, well, you know, what sample size did you use? Who did you speak to? How did you gather this information, etc etc? So I started to think to myself, could we bring down the iron curtain on research? Um, and I was very fortunate because Facebook was becoming kind of cool at the time. So we set up uh, these secret groups on Facebook. I took all the people I was interacting with on, our, on the ground in terms of these events that we're using, um, and we created what we called missions. Um, so we'd send young people on missions every day. So on behalf of Absa, I would say, go out, and today your mission is take a photo of um, a moment where you're most excited about life or go out and uh, and record a video clip where you and your friends are hanging out, or go out and uh, write a phrase that describes how you felt most sad. So we gave them all these seemingly abstract things to do, um, and they produced all this content and information, and my job was to interpret that on behalf of of young people to Absa. And what was great about uh, how we did the research is we invited all the execs to kind of sit there and have a fishbowl effect on all the data we were collecting on these random, on these secret groups, and so they felt that they were part of the data collection and they felt that what we were doing was closer to the, the heartbeat of young people. And so when it came to the actual solution we presented, we weren't selling it to them. We were just come, kind of packaging the insights. And, and that was the kind of way Monatifellas Fellows was really born as far as a strategic consulting business. And, uh, and we grew from there. And uh, you know, I was, as you said, you know, I, I do not say I was a money-making machine, but um, I converted what was eventually, essentially an events business to an insights-driven uh, youth agency. Uh, Which we ran for about five years. So that was the that was the beginning, and it was it was an amazing experience. So we were, I think I was in my uh, early twenties at the time, and I employed probably about uh, at our height about twelve young people. So it was just a bunch of crazy, crazy individuals. It was like a taxi rank office, but we were so close to the pulse of what young people were all about at the time, Um, and it you know it gave us a lot of commercial opportunity.
1: Wow. Amazing. And, and there's a few lessons in there that I want to unpack because I mean it's not everybody that just has a laptop and personality and a new person with apps, but, but first of all, who, who's not, who has not read this book yet? Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> so you, you see the word yet, it's one of my favorite, my favorite, my favorite words in the dictionary. But it, there's a few reasons you should buy this book. So, so one of it is you've got an amazing author who really gives you like valuable, valuable stuff in here. Second one is, it's, it's once again, it's published by Tracy McDonald. So, so if you find a book that's published by Tracy McDonald, you just know the content is done properly. And because a lot of the times, you know, you get guys like Musa, they've got an amazing message, which he does, but you need to package it properly. And you need to have it properly edited and properly checked. And when it's done by Tracy McDonald, you can be sure that it's a proper read. It's a nice read, it's an easy read, and there's a and which actually gives you a lot of valuable, valuable information. But some of the lessons that come out of this, especially this this whole episode thing, what I picked up, he focuses a lot. You focused a lot on using the word adding value to the client and really, really, really making sure that you're not there to store the money, but that there's a bit of risk and you and you have the you add proper value, like you guys did, and making and asking the tough question like why are we doing what everybody else is doing? Yeah. You know what all the other, other agencies are doing. Using technology to your to your advantage, um, really making sure, but also presenting yourself professionally, even though you were just a one-man truck. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that must have been quite hard just to just to get that part right. Yeah,
2: I mean, it, it was tricky. And you know, I'll tell you a funny story. Is that there was, there was three of us um, when I said three of us, three businesses that were given different segments to try and solve for. And we got the youth segment and two other companies that had other segments. And we had a kind of an on, on a Friday afternoon where all of the companies were we'll meant to present back. And the funny thing is, those other two businesses um, just weren't able to crack the brief based on the methodology that they used because there's such a short window for us to come back to the client. So being a one-man team I actually worked to my advantage in that context because I was able to move a lot quicker. Um, I was able to use technology to leverage the speed of being able to get information back. Um, and also because of my process, when I started giving the feedback back to the client, I was not starting from the position to sell them on um, what we had done, but rather just explain what they had already experienced. So it really worked uh, worked in our favor. But I think what was, what was also a big lesson out of that whole answer process, is the other two companies failed to crack the brief. We got it right. And so they actually extended us uh, an opportunity to make the contract a lot bigger. And uh, this was another big, big, one of my first lessons in, in not biting off more than you can chew. So one of the ideas that we presented back was the concept of Budget Pal. And effectively the insight was with young people, they're a loss leader, right? So you're not gonna make money from them when they're young. You have to get into the relationship and you have to stay by their side so that you're top of mind when they do become economically active, right? That key insight um, drove us to come up with an idea that said how do banks position themselves as the pal, the guy that's always there. So we created a, you know, and this was completely conceptual, we created a, an idea for them to essentially have a way to be able to give every young person a, a green, yellow, or red light relating to the goals that they had to achieve. So uh, a very simple example is you know, metric is coming up and you have to save for your address. Um, and every month when your accounts and your debits go off, um, you get a signal from the bank that says you are green, yellow, or red towards that goal and in so doing you're empowering them with a the savings mentality but you're also doing so in a way that young people can start to see you as an advisor to their journey um, now from a technology perspective we had zero clue how that would work um, and we had no capability to do it to do it because it was a great idea um, and so when we presented some of those there's about three or four different ideas and so Absa said, "We love it can you guys go and do it for us in fact use the contract to get it done um, and it was sizable for where we actually it was about four and a half million rand contract for a one-man show um, and I remember having sleepless nights about it and I just remember saying to myself the, the, the worst thing you can do for yourself is damage your reputation because you don't to deliver on what you can do and we actually had, I, I turned down the contract because I said to them you know, I'd actually have you work with someone that's got the scaling capability and have us advise them along the way um, and needless to say they, they stuffed it up but uh, it helped us to preserve our relationship and preserve our reputation as well
1: that, that is such a big lesson because as an entrepreneur, you go, and you see the numbers, yeah. and you go like, cool. You know, we could pull this one off. How amazing would that one be? Yeah. Um, and entrepreneurs do that a lot. But you sort of have the savvy to yeah. say, right, it's a lot. Okay. So, 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 what happened after your business? Mean, you, you had the Expo project. You then went on and made megabytes and you sold it for what a trillion dollars.
2: <laughs> I mean, how 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 did that all work? <laughs> yeah. So we, I ran Monatikillas for about seven years. Um, it was a fascinating journey because we went from eventually a party company um, to an insights business to an experiential business um, and uh, we started experiencing some very interesting uh, challenges. So I'm, I'm, because I'm Zambian and I naturalised as a South African after 1994, uh, from a BE perspective I'm exactly your hue uh, when it comes to your sport. Right? So we were involved. we brothers. We're brothers. From another month. Um, so, so, so as a small business, as you know, you want to yeah. get yourself longer-term contracts. You want to get more guarantees. So we started pitching for a lot of government business. Um, we started submitting proposals, which I hated. Um, but we get to you know, being talk, uh, shortlisted and in some cases told that we're the best in the room. But we never actually got the work. And it used to bother me. I was, I was confused. What, how does that work? At the time, being quite naive to the implications of VE, et etc. et cetera. Um, so when the penny did drop, but that was the thing, we went on a, um, on a process to trying to partner with people that could help us get our B-rated, isn't that ironic, right? Um, and, uh, and at the time it was quite strange because there was a lot of people that were interested in our company, but very few that had add value. Um, and at the same time, we were investing in a lot of technology to help us scale our research. So we started building what we called a, uh, Stupid Questions, which was a technology platform that allowed us to essentially ask five questions to about 100,000 young people in our database and get responses back within 24 hours and reward them with airtime. time. Um, and that was part of our secret source and being able to respond quickly to research. Um, so we invested about 400,000 Rand in getting that done. Um, the first guy that walked to the door said I could build this thing. We said, great, build it for us. Um, and that money was wasted because he actually couldn't do the work. Simultaneously, we were going through this process of trying to figure out if we needed to partner or someone to get longer term government contracts. Simultaneously, we were doing some work with the Royal Buffalo Nation around the World Cup, um, and we had got ourselves probably in about a 700,000 rand hole because we had over delivered and the client hadn't paid us. So there's a lot of things happening at exactly the same time, right? Um, and all of it forced me to kind of sit back and take the show, the version. Of you know having spent four hundred thousand Rand on technology that delivered zero, um, being in litigation with the robot Nation, which is also another funny story. Um, we had the same lawyers, Edward Nathan, Sonnenberg, and Edward Nathan said, "No, don't worry, we'll represent you." And we're like, "So you're going to choose us over the robot nation and They're like, "No, don't worry, Chinese walls, all this stuff." And we're like, "It's not going to work." So we spent about eight months trying to fight a legal battle to get our money out of them, which is another 300,000 rand spent. So we were in the hole for quite a lot of money and we hadn't figured out how we were going to scale the business outside of our model. Um, and so through that process, what was interesting is I had a great relationship with a gentleman called Tebe um, Talapin, who's one of the, you know, one of the foremost brand builders in South Africa. And he has a business called The Brand Leadership Group. Um, and he mentored me through kind of varsity and I like, worked with him on a lot of projects, um, but as a project manager, as I was learning the, the ropes, and he had been for the longest time he to come and join the business, and he wanted to get involved. And he thought what we were doing was cute, but it could be cuter if you worked with him, that whole thing. Um, and uh, and one when when the business started hitting kind of these major skids and becoming kind of what I thought was a bit of a challenge financially, um, he reached out again and he said, well, why don't we consider bringing you on board? Uh, why don't we see if we can repackage the value proposition and leverage off brand leadership, which is a corporate brand and all these clients. Um, and so, uh, so we did a merger, and that's where, effectively, I retired the Munati Fellas business um, and I, I went to be the managing director of one of the biz- uh, divisions of the brand leadership group, which was IHOP. Um, so I think Munati Fellas, ultimately, I mean, for a business that was at its heyday about five and a half, uh, six, uh, six million in revenue, um, it failed, I, I think. I, I, didn't, I didn't get a cent for it. Um, at the end of the day, and I think it was also being naive, it was also the point where I didn't realize what value I actually had created, um, A, but B, I was also just tired, you know, being a young person who spent um, the earlier half of your 20s, you know, putting energy behind the business and having seen it almost decline, um, I, I, was, I was emotionally and physically drained, uh, but the process was, uh, was an eye-opener because the next chapter was the, 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 the short but very intense stint with the brand leadership group as well. Okay.
1: Right, so there's, yeah, I mean, those are the lessons that we, that we talk about that makes us successful as, as entrepreneurs. But the other thing that I'm interested in, and you touched a bit on that now, is mentorship. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've had mentors throughout your life, again, yeah? And explain a bit about the, the pros and the cons, and, or, or, or what specific value has mentorship added to Musa and to you creating wealth and businesses? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, mentorship has been really, really important.
2: I think for me, the best way to capture this is it is is if it accelerates. I mean, I, I really think sometimes there were moments where I came up against challenges or questions or whatever it is for the first time. And I often think about if I'd gone through those things on my own to try and figure them out, it would have taken a year or two and probably some months and bruises along the way. What mentorship has enabled me to do personally is to accelerate through some of those really tough decisions and tough conversations. So you pick up the phone and you speak to someone who's, who's done it before and done it a few times before uh, it just helps to bring some clarity around what decision you need to make. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is I've got a very different construct around how I approach mentorship because I believe that the, the incorrect way that a lot of young people approach mentorship is please, will you make my dreams come true? Right? That tends to be the, the construct. So you'll reach out to someone who you think has done really well and you go to them kind of going, you know, will you please help me get onto your level? But I have figured out that the best way to get to mutual, mutually beneficial mentorship is to be quite forthright what value you bring to even your mentor. Um, and I remember the only reason Tebe eventually agreed to mentor me was uh, was because I was quite cheeky with him, um, in the sense that the first time I met him, I was at Vince and he came to give us a lecture, and I said to him, yo, um, you know, I think you're really cool. He had just come from the US, he was the marketing director for Nike, um, he was that guy, you know, drove a Porsche, parked it in the parking lot, I was like, whoa, I want to be like, that guy. Um, And so when he came to give our lecture, he was just so suave and so smooth and he understood economics and economic branding and marketing I was like, wow. So when I went to him, I was like, yo, can you mentor me? And he was like, yeah, yeah, of course I can mentor you. He says, here's my card, send me an email, you know, blah, blah, blah. Sent him an email, no response. Called him, no response, the whole thing. And so I bumped into him about six months later at the airport. And I remember when I saw him and he saw me, he kind of sheepishly said, oh, hi. And I greeted him and I said to him, well, I I, I sent you a couple emails, you hadn't responded, Um, but the reason why I was emailing you is I think you're really great and I I think you can teach me a lot, but I really believe that I can show you a few things about the world of technology. And I remember him looking at me going, who does this kid think he is? Um, And that was the moment where in his mind the mutual value sparked, because what I was saying was a little bit cheeky, but it was really true. Um, And he became curious about what that meant. So the only reason our mentorship relationship worked is that he felt he was getting equally as much value as I was getting. Um, and when that equation was in balance, then you now we naturally went our separate ways. But um, that's, that's always my view on mentorship, even today. When I speak to young people, if they come to me and they say, Well, you mentor me? I say, of course I'll mentor you. Um, but human nature, by its very uh, construct, is you know, what is in it for me? And if you can answer that question, it makes the mentorship relationship that much stronger. So Except
1: I love that. Is there any questions from the audience so far for, for Musa regarding his or regarding digital marketing or strategy? Any questions? Not, not yet. So, so I'm going to ask him another few questions and I'll open up the floor again for you guys. Um, Musa, so, 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 so share with us, I mean, after, after your second stint, you, yep. you, you then went to Netbank. Yes. Uh, i mean that must have been just totally different different lessons different different environment but what did you learn there what did you learn about business from a corporate perspective yeah so that was was fascinating so
2: i mean the, the segue into NetBank was was important because it was the first time i had a job um, a job officially right so since i left varsity um, I had worked as a consultant in many contexts, and then I had gone into this um, brand leadership transaction. And the brand leadership transaction was a two-year experience that you know, took the last bit of energy completely out of me. So when I made the decision to leave brand leadership, my, uh, my trajectory was I was actually planning to move to Japan, and I was just wanting to recharge, and I was a little bit tired of you know, the context. Of, uh, and so when, they, when I was made the offer at NetBank my mind was completely not even on, on trying to do anything related to corporate um, and the guy that actually approached me is a good friend, Sidney and Um I had been doing some work trying to you know, lobby for work out of SAB, and he was the head of global brands at the time and he moved over to NetBank and when he got to NetBank I was actually doing, I was lobbying to get some work out of NetBank. And I remember after a month or two, he came to me, and said, look, I've, you've been speaking to some of my guys here and all the stuff that you're talking about is great and we need it, but we actually don't have any capability to do it. And he said, well, why don't you consider coming and you know, setting up our digital marketing team? Um, and the first thing that went off of my head was that I'm just too tired. Like I'm too tired um, to move into another context. I'm too tired for corporates. i never worked in a corporate. So I said to him, you know, I, 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 as much as I appreciate the opportunity, my mind was made up, I'm going to Japan. Why must I entertain this offer? And I remember buying my ticket, and I remember him saying, you know, just think about it. And I said to him, I'll think about it. Um, it was two weeks until I had to leave, and I was kind of getting my affairs in order. He then called me again, he said, look, you know, can you please come and And I said to him, Sid, do you know what? I, I, As much as I appreciate what you're saying, I've never worked in a corporate context, so I don't want to be frustrated by your bureaucracy. <laughs> B, you, you take a big risk here. I'm like, I'm gonna come into the organization thinking the way I think. And you understand that that's gonna be a, a lot for the organization to understand. And see, um, I've, I've resigned, and I want to move on. And I want to do something different. And he said to me, "Look, I completely here." it." Um, and I went on that day. It was a Thursday. I remember clearly. And one of my biggest problems, and I suppose it's the problem of an entrepreneur, is this curiosity thing. And I remember thinking to myself, "You know what? When else in my in life am I going to get the opportunity to move into an organisation um, at the level that they wanted me to come into, and to do that kind of thing?" Um, At which point in my life will I get this kind of opportunity again? So I picked up the phone and I called three of my mentors and I said to them, look, this is the situation. Um, And uh, and all three of them said exactly the same thing. They said, uh, you know, you could go into this thing and hate it and you could go into this thing and realize something and discover something about yourself that you didn't know. And because I'm the kind of person who Typically, doesn't like to have any regrets. I was like, you guys know, should not have said that. Um, so, I sparked this curiosity about, you know, what if I go into the corporate and Hypothetically, I loved it. Hypothetically, it was amazing. Hypothetically, I had a fantastic experience. Um, you know, all the negativity I had as a perception towards bureaucracy, et cetera, et cetera, it could be the opposite, right? Um, or it could suck, and I could leave. Um, so, I thought about that, and you know, you know, the the inner curious guy in me was just like, try it out, give it a bash. If you hate it, you can leave. If you love it, um, you know you'll stay. Uh, and I'm very fortunate in that I, I accepted the offer from from Sydney. And if it wasn't for him as a leader, I actually probably wouldn't have taken the job. And he allowed me to do what I needed to do. I arrived at Nedbank a typically un-transformed, um, quite not an innovative business with a mandate to try and drive innovation um, from a group level. Um, I had fortunately a great budget to spend other people's money for the first time in a long time, which is a um, But they really just allowed me to do what I needed to do. And I think the experience would not have been as good as it was if I wasn't being led by a person like Sydney. So the big lesson for me in the NetBank context was the importance of, of even, even corporate leadership. Um, the ability for someone, and, and, and Sydney's the kind of guy who's worked in lots of roles, so he understood how to lead in a corporate context. And I'd never been led by someone like him. Um, the second thing was, they created a space where I could do what I needed to do, and he protected me. You know, there was a lot of risk. I remember his boss um, said to Sydney, Don't hire this guy, it's going to create a lot of problems for the business. Um, and Sydney took it on the shoulder and said, no, I think this guy's going to you know, drive value for us. Um, And so you've shouldered a lot of um, potentially negative um, uh, perception about bringing in a young person who was black, who was coming from an entrepreneurial context and who nobody had vetted from an executive perspective in South Africa. Um, but it worked out, it really paid dividends, because sometimes that's exactly what you need. You need someone that looks different, that sounds different, that says things in a way that's different, and brings um, a different approach to, to, to a context which everyone thinks they know about. Um, and so NetBank for me was was amazing, I was able to set up a team. I, I unfortunately I did too much too quickly, so an entrepreneur peaks too quickly, so you know, I always used to laugh with uh, my friends, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you always try and make yourself redundant, right? So that's the whole thing. You set up your business so it runs, so you don't have to be there. Whereas the corporate environment is the opposite. You set up your environment so everyone kind of feels it when you're not there, so you're still relevant. (laughs) You know, and I I struggled with this idea. And so eight months in, my team was running, and they were running fairly effectively, they were getting stuff done. And so i was like okay what's next what do we do uh, netback was on the back foot um, and, and actually had just been launched by F&B. There there's all this stuff and i was like guys let's go let's go let's go and i remember sydney called me to his office and he said you know so i really appreciate how far you're trying to think and push but um corporates are very different so just relax and i, and I said what do so you mean just relax he says no i think you need to give the business about eight months to catch up with where you're at i said eight months and he said yeah and i said so you're gonna Pay me to sit here for eight months. He said, "Yeah." And I couldn't. That blew my mind. I couldn't. You know, coming from as an entrepreneur, I'm like, you know, pay me, send me just sit here for eight months and wait for the business to catch up. And he said, "Yes." And I remember at that moment distinctly. I thought this is going to be a waste of my time. How do I sit here for eight months, twiddling my thumb, playing Tetris, and kind of going with the flow? Um, and I was quite uh, forthright with my, you know, with my discomfort because I just felt ethically that was incorrect. I can't collect a salary from you or not. and not add value. Just it wasn't, it wasn't consoling in my mind. So they didn't bribe me with an MBA. So they offered me to go and study my, my MBA, and I thought to myself, this is probably a better way to spend the next eight months, um, which I went off and I did. Um, and when I completed the, my MBA, I came back with all these amazing ideas about new business models, how to get more innovative, how to become more nimble. And I pitched this to the board. About um, you know, my theory was financial institutions in South Africa they will not be able to change and pivot and become more innovative. It's it's gonna be structurally impossible um, and the risk is too high. Unless something fundamental happens, banks and insurers in South Africa, the traditional ones, are not set up to make those pivots. So my theory was the only way for a person like me to remain in an organization like Medbank is to create a smaller business and create effectively a strategy of the child that needs the mother over time and allow that small business to run and operate in a way that's gonna disrupt our own business model but own it entirely. Similar to what Lexus did with, with Toyota, um, and so I pitched this idea to the team, and, and all of them loved it. And at the corporate level, Mike Brown, all of them got really excited. Um, but you know, the share price was still doing okay, and you know, we weren't losing market share at the time. So you know, there was just no urgency about getting anything done. Um, and I remember leaving that meeting, kind of being excited that there was going to be some kind of change or movement. There. It just wasn't. So I had all this energy after getting, you know, going being exposed to a global MBA and doing my thing, come back and put this wonderful idea to this business, trying to get back into my entrepreneurial zone. And they were just like, yeah, we hear you and it's awesome. Um, but, you know, things are still okay. You know, you're not going to really move. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, you know, this is the state of uh, a bank like NetBank, which was not the most innovative, it was not the most preferred, and it was losing market share. But long long before they knew it, we could see it. Um, What was going to be the outcome if I stayed in this particular role? So I got disheartened by the fact that I wasn't going to try and play the political games around driving the agenda. And back to my lane as an entrepreneur, I just was like, create value, create value, and show the value, and everything else will make sense. And unfortunately, the second bitter lesson about corporate is that that's not always the, the equation. Um, there's so many other variables so the value is great and it's interesting and unless you have about the line sponsor and align all the other political components of the value you actually may not eventually realize it so there's a there's a bitter pill to swallow uh, but uh i was led by an amazing individual called uh, sydney beller we we won netback and luri for the first time in about 15 years because of the campaigns we were creating we enabled our team to start experimenting with different ad and media formats We got them to start looking at different ways of trying to target a market that was a bit of an enigma to the organisation. So we started to push boundaries and I really believe while I was there we were able to show value and the strategy that we started even back then is still to a large extent being implemented today. So there's a lot that I learned but um, at the end of the day it was a heartbreaking uh, experience uh, because I just thought there
1: was so much more that could be done. Sure. Uh, Remind me a bit of the corporate days why well, I'm not there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but before I ask him about, I mean, I really want to ask him about his passion. Um, because He's got a lot to share his thought regarding that. But let, let's open up the floor for some questions. So we've got a question over there. So I don't know if you answered this before, but you talk beautifully you know what it's, uh, you said. really great. Thank um, you. What are you doing now? Yeah. So the question is, what is he doing now? He's Annie value? Okay, so
2: maybe in chronology of the story. So I'll pick up from where I left off at NetBank, right? So I was, uh, I was fortunate to... Uh, around about the time I got really disheartened with where I was at NetBank, I, I got a, an email from um, a, a random person on LinkedIn. And this is why I always tell you people don't understand LinkedIn. I got an email from Facebook through LinkedIn and uh, a lady said to me, would you, would you be interested in joining Facebook as a business? And I thought it was spam or someone uh, joking, so I ignored it for two and a half minutes and I thought to myself, I'd better just check in case, you know, it's real. So I responded, I said, yeah, of course I'm interested, please call me. And within two minutes she responded back and I remember um, her name very interesting, an Irish lady, Kate Lavelle Carling. Um, and she called me up and she said, look, we're, we're trying to expand into Africa. Um, and we'd like to speak to some guys who understand tech and entrepreneurship. Um, I said to her, you know, yeah, I think you might be speaking to the right guy. So I said, to a, what, what is this whole, what's the job about? And so at the time, Facebook didn't have an office in, in sub-Sahara Africa. And uh, they typically led with a, with, a, with a sales office that eventually set up a market and then they built operations around the sales office. So they were looking for what they call a client partner to set up the team in sub-Sahara. And I went through a, a rigmarole of interviews, about 16 different interviews. Um, I was flown you know, to, to Dublin twice, came back to South Africa. And this is another funny story about speed, um, because I was speaking to five other employers uh, who had been talking to me for three months. Facebook called me, and within three weeks, they had made a decision about hiring me. Um, and uh, when I joined them, I was just like, you know, this is an amazing business, but I was just super curious around what it must be like to be in a global business that is at the edge of everything, that's at the cutting edge of technology cutting edge of uh, people management, cutting edge of leadership. And so I spent two and a half years at Facebook, effectively setting up a team here, and I learned a lot about the big gaps, I believe, that exist from a technology perspective um, in Africa, and in lots of emerging markets. So um, when I left Facebook, I built a technology business, which is what I I do now. So my three areas of passion are, are technology, creativity, and telling our stories to the world. So the businesses I'm involved in now tick those three boxes. So Bridge Labs is uh, essentially a a technology company that builds our own product. So we built a learning management system, um, and we're solving all the problems that are traditionally associated with Africa. So education is our first one. We built a platform called Minute, which is effectively an ads management platform for small businesses. So helping small businesses create ads through conversational interfaces. Um, And we recently finished a project with Orchard Leadership, where we've effectively digitized an enterprise from start to finish and we're converting that into a dealership as a service solution. Um, And so those are the kind of projects that that, that Bridge Labs does. Um, The big thing that we're trying to do with Bridge Labs is get African people, especially young people, to solve complex problems and to create our products from scratch. So we built a a small but really, really intelligent team of engineers um, and uh, and some guys that are doing artificial intelligence with the University of Johannesburg um, and we have them solving really interesting challenges uh, for, for some of our clients. The second business I'm involved in is called the Brave Group of Companies, um, which is a traditional agency. Uh, My partner in the front here, Karabasong, was the CEO of the business, Um, and I'm uh, what they call the Chief Future Officer. So uh, the business itself has got uh, five business units a traditional agency, TV ads, radio ads, amazing print work. Um, We've also got a business called Rogue, which is all about behavior change. I'm um, starting to understand how we build internal communications around driving and, uh, internal behavior change with uh, with the staff uh, So we do a lot of work for APSA with an African ST. Interestingly enough, the circle comes uh, uh, yes. comes around. Um, <laughs> and then we've got another business called Whippets, um, and then Robado and then a business called Motherboard, is the digital business. So I'm caretaking building the digital business as a, and as chief future officer for uh, for the House of great Group. And then the last business I'm involved in, probably about 5 or 10% of my time, is a podcast called African Technology, uh, which effectively is a a window into the world of uh, venture capital, entrepreneurship, and the interesting stories that aren't told about what is happening from a technology perspective in Africa. So we spend a lot of time trying to find the alternative narrative, um, speaking to the guys that are really getting involved around solving problems, and we've been working on this podcast for about a year, and it's really starting to gain a lot of traction now. We've, uh, we spent some time in Amsterdam and Paris, um, in a very similar setting to this, where we went and we said, what's going to happen if we rock up in Amsterdam and do a live podcast? And we had 130 people turn up to this random cafe um, um, in Amsterdam, and they were just there to listen and understand what was happening in Africa. And it was the first time they attended an event of Africans talking about African problems, and I was like, how is this possible? Um, we had lots of guys that had worked in the VC space for many years, and they are like, we've never actually been to an event um, on Africa that is hosted by Africans, which we thought yeah. was mind blowing. Um, so, telling our story is equally as important as building these amazing businesses. So, those are the three things um, that I do at the moment.
1: It sounds a bit like the EPSA story, you know, where they were doing the market research based on reports that anybody or that everybody else was doing, but nobody was actually talking to the people and finding out what the real issue is. Yeah. Um, to address and front with your company. Absolutely. Excellent. Thank you, great question. Any any other questions from the audience? Mr. Bruce. Earlier yeah. you mentioned uh, having three mentors. Yeah. Why three? And <laughs> what happens with <in> this conflict? <laughs> <Nah>.
2: <laughs> 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 he just says that a bad mentor of YouTube. <laughs> Um, so, so, so I had three mentors and there's no magic around the number three so it just happened to, to land there um, I think I, well, I'm quite finicky about the people that mentor me and I I also believe that you outgrow grow mentors it's important to outgrow mentorship um, I think if you don't then you've got a problem um, someone's not growing it's probably the person in the mirror. Um, and so, so mentorship for me should serve a very clear purpose for a period of time. Um, to date, I've only had three. Tabea um, Kalafeng was one of them. A gentleman called Carlo McFarlane was was the other when I was uh, when I was still quite young, and uh, he was involved as a, as a dancer and an entertainer, and a young man who um, I really felt expounded the principles that I subscribe to. Uh, and the third, most recently, is a gentleman called Salim Shah Mohammed. Um, who is, uh, is, a, is a QSR specialist, who came from the U.S. and he's based here now, creating franchises. They, they brought the Mike's Kitchen franchise and they revived him. Um And my, my evolution of mentors have been trying to match my own life stage with the things I aspire to achieve. So, you know, on a very practical level, Tebe and I, um, you know, we had a very particular lifetime with our mentorship because he didn't aspire to have a family like I did. Um, he was comfortable being a single, um, thundercat who ran the world and do, did what he needed to do, which I think is great for that phase of my life. But when I realized that family was important to me and I realized that my trajectory was fundamentally different, I outgrew that mentorship. And so a person like Salim Shah Mohammed, who has brought up an amazing, beautiful family and fortunately his kids have flown the coop, um, our mentorship is that much stronger because I can, I can leverage a lot more from his experience and his understanding. So there's no magic number around three. Um, it's just me trying to match where I am from a life perspective. Um, with people that
1: share similar of and outlook. Excuse me. Cool. Great question, thanks Bruce. Yes, we've got another question on Toronto, Sonia. Do you purposely go out in life and look for mentors? So the question is, do you purposely go out in life and look for mentors? So the older I've become, the less I've been purposeful
2: about it. Because when I was about four or five years ago, I was quite proactive in looking for mentors because I think at that particular point, there was a lot of gaps which I believe that I had and I wanted to try and fill them as quickly as possible, whether it was knowledge gaps, whether it was uh, network gaps, Um, So, the older I've gotten, I've found that it's become more organic in terms of the mentors that I've, I've, or the potential people I can mentor by. Um, And so, the organic nature of that relationship has made it a lot easier because my network lends itself to me, fortunately, being surrounded by really amazing people. Um, and as I interact with them, the mentorship kind of reveals itself as opposed to me looking for it. Um, and so I've also taken a big step back from you know, trying to you know, package, I'm looking for this, that and the next thing, to trying to connect with people on a more human level. And so now even the kind of mentor that I eventually look for and become mentored by has changed drastically. If I reflect on Carlo, then Tebe, then Salim, they all happened to be men, which was not deliberate. Um, and so what I've done now is because I don't have a, a checkbox and I'm interacting with different people, there are strange but really wonderful people that have popped up that I can be mentored by that I would have never really considered. So it's become a lot more organic. Um, and there's one person in particular at the moment who's a, is a, is a female. Um, she's white. She's actually just retired. She used to work for one of the biggest conglomerates uh, in the world, uh, Coca-Cola. And she has become a surprise mentor to me because I never thought that we'd have the level of relation we have. So, and that was completely organic and, and I didn't look for anything, it just kind of landed on my lap. So so less so now um, than, I, than I was doing in the past. Can I just ask other uh, question? Yeah. Uh, the digital media
1: strategy, do you talk about in your book? Just repeat the question. Ah. Okay, so the digital media strategy and, and how much of that I talk about in my book. So
2: so yes, I, sp- I speak to to how I think about... so. So this notion around digital media, digital marketing, I challenged since I was at Netlake, because the one thing I did say in my book and i already said is that the notion of digital marketing is a dead concept because our context now is digital. Therefore, marketing is marketing, it's just the context is different. So when we create a title or a name like digital marketing, we tend to put it in a box and we tend to treat it very differently, which I think is incorrect. I think a lot of traditional marketers would be great at marketing because they've done it for these years, they just need to understand the rules of engagement from a digital perspective. So in my book, I speak a lot about that. I speak about the value you can get by applying found marketing principles to understanding how the platform has changed. And the platform is the of our devices we have, the way humans consume those devices, and how technology solves problems for those humans. So I speak about that a lot uh, in the book from a, from a very high level strategic perspective, but I also give some examples of uh, certain projects that I've undertaken that I've been able to deliver are now on marketing in a more digital context.
1: Oh, yes, one question from you, then I'll go over there. Yes, one question. So business is great and I love making money. But here is
0: more about is there anything you do to give back uh you know disadvantaged communities, really, things like that, you're getting involved
1: with anything like that? Yeah. So business is great and is there any philanthropical like, stuff that, that that's happening on your site? if uh, you know my re my remote background. Yes.
0: For rotary, or you Yeah. I you. Enjoy
2: yeah, look, I'm a member of a Rotary club, so... Um, so, <laughs> no, I'm I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> um, uh, so, so, yes, I think, uh, giving back to me is an interesting concept. Um, and I find that there tends to be a level of... Um, so I, I find that people give back generally because it's good to give back, not because they believe in what they're giving to, right? And I, and I try and avoid that as much as possible, firstly. The second thing is I, I'd love to give back within my talent space and within the, the area which I've been blessed from a, you know, from a, from a God given talent perspective. So I spend a lot of time with young people and small medium businesses, trying to help them understand how to grow their enterprise. I spend a lot of time Coaching young people on where their businesses are at and so trying to get them to grow. Uh, and I spend a lot of time giving back all the time and knowledge that I have. Um, over and above that, my wife, my beautiful wife sitting next to you, um, she gets involved in a lot of initiatives. Uh, she's from the Eastern Cape. Um, so she gets involved, involved in a lot of initiatives trying to get back into the schools um, in the disadvantaged areas. And, and very recently, actually, um, she collected I don't know how many thousands of sanitary pads that I had put in the back of a trailer to get down to the East and get into got precious space for my son's bicycle, but we did it. Um, and, uh, and at the time I wasn't quite sure what she was trying to get at, but when we got there uh, and were able to give back in a way that was, was more kind of native to her, her passion point versus mine, um, you start to understand that it's so important to align how you give back to who you are. So I'm, I'm not necessarily the kind of person that will go and, and do that kind of thing. Um, but as a collective, in terms of our family, we're trying to figure out the best way to give back in line with about our values are. Uh, so from my perspective, I spend a lot of time with small businesses and, and, and young people. Um, from my wife's perspective, she's, uh, she's more philanthropic in the sense that she wants to make the wrongs of the past right, um, and she's, a, she's an aspiring lawyer. So she's trying to align that to her passion as well. Um, and so we're trying to collectively, as a family, figure out how we create the construct of giving back for our kids, and I speak about that in my book as well. Uh, because a big part of legacy is about how um, you concretize, how you give back. And I believe there's a big gap um, for young African families in that way. Because giving back is stitched into how we do things and it's couched under things like black tax. Um, you don't actually ever get proactive about what that means from a day-to-day perspective. So, uh, so we try and keep it in line with what we you know, what we've been blessed with from a talent perspective. And we're always open to doing you know, doing other things that can help us to grow what we do already. i
1: I started like I started the book club, which is a, a, a non-profit organisation, because it's something that that I was passionate about. You know, you don't know, necessarily give um, to the guys in the street, or you know, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying, you know, that that was not my thing. Yeah. Uh, but when you align with what what you're passionate about, knowledge, yeah. it just comes so much easier. Yeah. Um, and, and then one can then give back through that. Uh, before we we, we um, ask the, the, a few final questions uh, before we close up this evening, there's, there's one obvious question that neither I've asked or anybody in the audience, and that's the final of the talk. <laughs> I mean, that is Hank It's like, nobody curious about that, I'm not. Where does that come from was a
2: that? Yeah, that Many a night of trying to figure out what we're going to call this thing, myself and Tracy, many back and forths around names and all that. But, but I, I was trying to weave together the golden thread of um, ultimately what I, did, I believe was quite a non traditional route to where I am. You know, I don't think I've followed the manual around You know, what should be done next at which different point, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so the common thread you know, through all the chapters of the book is effectively me looking at different scenarios that I've been. Uh, place them or thrust into um, and actually having two basic decisions to make and the premise is that you'll either make ladder decisions and ladder decisions ultimately are incremental decisions and lead to incremental value so you know if you think about the traditional notion of you know get a job become a junior manager then become a senior manager then become a senior senior manager's manager then become an executive then hopefully one day you'll get the golden couplings um, that's very much ladder thinking in terms of the next step and the next run. Um, and with the same amount of energy, if you apply your mind to looking within your context for the trampoline opportunities, um, trampolines give you exponential uh, growth, exponential reach with exactly the same amount of energy expended. Um, and I think that for young people who are trying to add value in, in the age of augmentation, the ones that are able to find the trampoline opportunities and that will be able to intersect their passion points with their, what they are solving in their communities will ultimately be the ones that deliver the biggest impact. So, uh, ladders and trampolines was simply a methodology to help young people figure out how to, how to categorize the decision as to whether it's a ladder or a trampoline decision and how to approach that decision to get the best out of it for themselves. That's where, the, that's where the title came from. So that's excellent that makes,
1: that makes a lot more sense. Thank you. <laughs> any, any, any final questions from the audience? Yes, we have come one right over there, and then Bruce, I'll get to you.
2: yeah there, there, there's a lot to that question um and is, is there a gap i think there is a gap um, i think the gap is, is is created not necessarily by consumers um, but by enterprises and by businesses um, i think consumers if you look at the trajectory of how people uh, adopt new technology mobile devices etc etc consumers by their very nature will tend to be ahead of the curve of most businesses um, what i think the gap has been created by is by not enough innovation to be able to meet the consumer where they're at, given what they do. Um, and the example I often use is if you think about, it, I know many of you watch uh, Mzansi Magic, but there's a, there's a particular show called Our Perfect Wedding. Um, and Our Perfect Wedding is, uh, is pretty much a showcase of how black people get married, and they pretty much you know, go through the process of you know, when they met, how they fell in love, yada, yada, yada. And Our Perfect Wedding, from a viewership perspective, is one of the top performing shows in South Africa from a viewership perspective. And what is interesting to see is that uh, probably about 50 to 60% of the audience that watches our perfect wedding don't actually watch it on TV. They watch it through Twitter. Um, And they watch the entire thing from start to finish by interacting with our people and documenting each episode as it goes along. Now, this Twitter viewing typically says that people are on mobile devices and they're attentive on mobile devices and they're able to onboard messaging and communication using these devices to be able to make decisions. The question is, have you ever seen a corporate in South Africa being able to understand what that means in terms of how they advertise to people on Twitter? And the answer is no. Um, people have come, absolutely tried to get on that bandwagon and they failed disastrously. Other brands have tried and haven't got it right. So that's typically where I see a gap in how they're interpreting the change in consumer technology to where they meet them. Um, the same is, is true for the actual hardware. So, if you think about solutions that are being created, um, only the, the really innovative businesses are getting it right. If you look at insurance, the Indies of the world, the Yalu's of the world, these new startups that are essentially going to the market where it's at and they're trying to create solutions from first principles are the ones that are actually capturing the market. problem with them is that they're startups and they don't have masteries yet. So I think the gap has been created by the, the innovation vacuum that is happening at, at corporate level, whether it's retailers, whether it's banks. And I think that typically comes down to enterprise uh, architecture. A lot of these businesses were never built to be this uh, customer focused. They were never built, I always talk about banks. You know, if you think about a bank from a first principle was bring your money to me and I'll keep it for you and I'll charge you lots of interest for when you come back to get the money. So anything that has ever been built was for me to be able to take something from never for me to understand anything about you. It was never for me to try and get into your headspace space about you know, knowing your customer or what your aspirations are. And so that has been hard coded into the enterprise architecture of a lot of the organisations in South Africa. And so to undo that actually requires you to think about things very differently if you're going to bridge the gap. So as consumers become more tech-savvy, as they adopt these technologies better, um, there's always going to be a lag between how retailers and enterprise creators meet them where they're at. So, so my short answer is, I think there's a big gap, and I don't think it's being closed quite at the rate that it should be. I think consumers are paying for more solutions that meet them where they're at, but they just are not getting them quite yet.
1: Cool. Does that answer your question? You. So no. And then so. <laughs> and then, so. So, Bruce, last question from you, what? She asked
0: me a question. Oh, she <laughs> asked me a question. Okay, okay. so somebody yeah. not Bruce's question. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because the only thing i how do we bridge that gap in the oh, innovation
2: I, space? Yeah, I can, I can answer that. Yeah. It's slightly different. Okay. Um, so, so bridging the gap depends on where you're at. Okay. So, in my role at Netbank, how I bridge the gap is I pretty much apologised later. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um and, and that meant that there was a lot of things that I did which were not approved and nobody understood. Um, and that will give a very simple example when we were trying to understand how to bring the NetBank Cup as a property closer to the lower LSM market through media strategy using digital. Um, and we had been trying to solve this problem in exactly the same way for all these years. I went to them and I said the gap here is not actually that, that people at that lower LSM are not on YouTube and are not viewing video. The gap is that we're not creating the content that actually compels them to share it. So we went out and we found a guy I called him Bruce Comics, some of you may know him and he creates amazing short-form video but he understands that market he interprets the messaging he creates his caricatures that they get and we created this guy um, uh, called coach who was the character he was typically the drunk uncle of the township Um, and he was pretty much the commentator around the netbank cup and we used this this caricature in the media context to create the short-form content that delivered messaging around the netbank cup was humorous, um, got the, the lower segments to be able to identify with them, and were able to get amazing engagement reach as well as brand relevance. Now, in that context, when I started to pitch the idea around and they were like, well, what are you talking about? Who is this person? Um, and I had to do it, and then apologize later, and the results spoke for themselves. So how you bridge the gap in that context, if you're in a corporate, unfortunately, you're gonna to have to apologize later. Find the right things to do and get them done. And where I'm standing now, in terms of being outside of a corporate, how we bridge the gap is a lot different. How we bridge the gap is that we have to create the solutions that we talk about. And typically the biggest problem with enterprise and small business in South Africa is that we come up with the most amazing ideas, but we've got very few people that can build the solution. So what you'll see is that in any incubator, in any one of these hubs that have got small businesses and entrepreneurs, the guys will come up with a great business plan and then they'll, they'll, they'll struggle to find an engineer to build a minimum viable product. They'll struggle to find an engineer to try and bring it to life. So they outsource it to Estonia or India or one of these places. There's lots of communication gap and breakdown, so they actually don't eventually get the product to be what it needs to be. So the problem with being outside of the organization is that although the ideas are there, we struggle to bring them to life and we struggle to test them quick enough to justify that they add value. So from the position I'm standing now, I don't have to apologize later, I just have to build stuff and make sure that the market will be able to take it on. And if they take it on, our responsibility is to scale it. So the answer to the question is not necessarily how you bridge the gap, it's probably to understand what role you play in the ecosystem that you're in. And if you're in a corporate, the, the mantra is apologize later. If you're outside a corporate, is build. You always have to be able to build. And that's one of the lessons I learned at Facebook is the reason they're as amazing as they are is that they've got people that can think about amazing things and build them. When you have a problem that you need to solve at Facebook, you can create a quick sketch, walk a few desks down the road, and you've got enough talent to be able to bring that thing to life. And that we don't have, unfortunately, in South Africa to the same extent. So um, so build or apologize later. That's how we start to bridge the gaps. We typically intuitively know what the problems are. We, we, we hear, we understand what the issues are. Um, but understand where you are in your ecosystem and, and solve from there.
1: Excellent, excellent, so well done, well done. Lucille. So purchase the book. It's there at the back to find out more. I mean, a really good quality book. Uh, remember to purchase one for your for your colleagues as well for your business partners. They definitely need to get insights into this. Um, and then it's also Christmas, so remember to purchase one. You know, be ahead of the curve. Don't wait for Christmas to then only go and purchase your gifts. Uh, do it now; it's easy. Then you you really miss out the rush um, and get the insights that we saw. would you stay a bit to do a few book signings as well? Still yeah. Excellent. So we'll stay do a few book signings. Very chat to you. Um, and then I, I really want to thank you Musa. Thank you and thank you for for being with us. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and hopefully you guys learned at least one thing that you didn't know before you entered <laughs> here today. Because that's the objective of the business program, so If you've learned one thing tonight, excellent. If you don't please come and talk to me so I can change the questions that I'm asking and ask them a more difficult questions. Musa, thank you so much for your time. Jane, have you got a few final words that you'd like to say?
0: Thanks, everybody. Wow. i was as well. Brilliant. Super. I've certainly learned things. I always say I'm never too old to learn, and I'm pretty old, but I'm still learning. Thank, thanks to this gentleman and these wonderful guest authors that we have. Um, and Tracy, you're, you're an amazing lady to work with. Thank you very much for your contribution. And um, we still have got a couple more events coming up for the year end, so we will be you and you'll be singers everywhere and we do hope to see you before the end of the year thank you so much for attending thank you Big round of applause, thank you little token of oh, our thank, appreciation.
1: You. Thank, thank you so you. much. thank you very much do. We'll catch you <laughs> We see you here quite often. Thank you for that. It's really, really a pleasure having you here. You always ask good questions. Twice. He went way over my head. He was too clever for me. I picked up a few
0: things, but he was way, way too clever. No, it's amazing. Yeah, but his book is is very succinctly
1: and very well put together. I
0: know, i